This episode of The Ship Show is sponsored by PagerDuty. PagerDuty decreases alerting noise for operations and developers and ensures the right engineers are alerted at the right time. PagerDuty helps you identify common problems, allowing you to make system improvements proactively so you don't have to be woken up at 2 a.m., something nobody likes. Ship Show listeners can sign up for a free 14-day trial at www.pagerduty.com slash theshipshow. To ship, of course. All right, it is time again for build engineering, DevOps release management, and everything in between. It is the ship show, and it is the 50th episode. I don't know what that is. Is that like the golden episode or the silver episode or the paper episode? I don't even know. But but this is your host, uh, Paul Reed, uh, Silver Build Engineer on Twitter and at SilverBuildEngineer.com. And who is with me tonight for our silver, paper, gold, whatever, if episode? <laughs> Don't bury yourself. EJ Saramella, E. Saramella on Twitter. This is Sasha at Sasha underscore D on Twitter. Yusuf at Will Santos on Twitter. And we also have a special guest joining us, J. Mike McGar. <laughs> How's also, it going? Do we call him J. Mike? Yeah, you can. So here's the funny thing. Now we have two, like, initial J. You better watch people, out. I will. Like J. Paul, J. Mike. You could just call us Jay, and we'd be like, we both say what? <laughs> yeah, Mike, exactly. Mike, tell us a you, you are You are at Netflix currently. And you I do am. toolsy things at Netflix. Yeah, I manage the uh, build tools team at Netflix, which is part of engineering tools here at Netflix. Oh, I think I've met them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So well, Justin, I think you guys had Justin and Gareth yeah. at some point on, as well as I think Bruce. Oh, yeah, I wasn't there for that, but I've actually been out to the Netflix site and hung out with them. Uh, yeah, yeah. When um, there was a really nice woman who was managing the team at the time. and She still she, is, Diane Marsh. Diane. Yes, Marsh. Diane. Who yeah. I thought she had actually been promoted beyond just that team, but yeah, that, now, she was really I think great. She did, yeah, she did get a promotion. Anyway, yeah. Mike, welcome to the ship show. We're glad to have you here. I appreciate it. Thanks. I'm excited. Long time uh, listener, first time uh, caller. First time. Oh, oh, that's really cool. Yes. Mowed many a lawn to the show. Wow. So first, as we always do, news and views. So tonight we're starting with uh, actually something nostalgic. Vax PDP-11 and HP-3000. You can now get those in the cloud. We will link to this in the, the show. I know. People What's a Vax? Doing. Is that like a fax? I know. I know. <laughs> and we talked about this. We, what was the platform we had recently where it was like, I can't believe you can even do things on that anymore. Yeah. Apparently they also offer Spark emulation. You need to have your spark in the cloud. <laughs> wow. Elastic spark. What I have. Spark ever. Spark emulation. I mean, isn't isn't Spark licensed by um, Oracle? Yeah. Well, they actually said that. Yeah. There there there's some contention there. Yeah. I'm waiting for AIX in the cloud. We used to say. Uh, AIX in the cloud. I know. We used Alphars, to say, man. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what they're doing. So you can check out the company is a Swiss company who are emulation experts. So they're not experts on, on Swiss emulation then? Uh, I don't know. Maybe there's some chocolate going on in there. I don't know. Stromasis is the company. If you need to emulate your digital, your deck alpha risk. I actually ran Linux on an alpha once. It was actually pretty cool. It made me feel like I was going super fast. I'd be curious about like the migration story for people <laughs> moving this to the cloud. Yeah, well, the, I think the migration story is ported to Linux. <laughs> yes. Yes. Anyway, so if you have weird platforms, check them out. We will link to them in the show notes. 
Next up was a story, actually, I think Yusuf, you pointed this story to us, this article about DBAs versus developers, a sad tale of unnecessary conflict. Tell us more. Yeah, so it's kind of an interesting story. I mean, you know, it's your classic kind of DevOps, I guess, uh, situation where, yeah, where basically, you know, um, you've got developers who don't really know SQL, and they kind of want to go in there and hack stuff around, and then you've also got um, um, DBAs who, you know, they, they know SQL, they know the database engine inside out, and they understand how to create, you know, really solid models, and DBAs and, or, you know, database engineers say, no, you know, you can't do this, you can't change this column there, or you can't, you know, increase or decrease the size of this column, because if you do this, you're going to break this stuff. And so the the article kind of went through and talked about, you know, ways to kind of, again, like I said, it's more of a DevOps kind of thing, like get everybody on the same page, get everybody, you know, kind of working together and understanding what, you know, each other's requirements are, and um, also being, you know, sort of sympathetic or at least maybe empathetic towards each other, I guess, it, it's kind of a, I don't know, I've, I've been in this kind of situation before on both sides where you have DBAs that are very, very specific about, you know, what it is that you're, you're running on, on their database, whether, you know, things like whether you're implementing business logic in your application-level code or in a stored procedure, that type of stuff. So, yeah, it's you know, pretty well, good so, article. So what's interesting, you know, I'm just looking at, they, they list nine lessons, and some of the ones that stand out at me are, call out bad behavior early, it's not just a DBA developer thing, communication is everybody's responsibility, conflict is inevitable, it's how you handle it that counts. These things, they seem like lessons that are relevant actually to everyone. Yeah. Not just DBAs and developers. I disagree, I think we should totally start coining the term DBA ops and just like create a new movement. Well you know it's funny because they actually said at the top of the article, it's like, for many developers, does DBA really stand for don't bother asking? And uh, here's the thing, like, so they, they do have that whole, like, BOFH, you know, bastard operator from hell thing going on. And that was a, you know, the DBAs were supposedly worse than the sysadmins. But it's like, I was actually uh, on site recently with a client, and I was talking to the DBAs. And it turns out that I'd been on site for quite some time, and I'd never actually met the DBAs. And there was this sort of, like, the way the organization sort of thought about them was like, oh, they're villains or whatever. Like, I mean, you know, it's like, oh, the, the DBAs sit in the corner, and they, you know, the high priesthood of the databases. And, and the way that they talked about it, I was like, I, this seems a lot like how I used to feel when it came to release engineers. And, and neither of those situations are good. But it seems like the advice would be relevant kind of in any context. It is similar, well, maybe not quite as similar, but at, at a place I used to work, the one DBA there had a uh, hearing difficulty, mm-hmm. and you, you would approach him to discuss a problem, and he would turn around in his chair, not even get up, nothing, look at you, smile, start nodding, and reach up and turn off both hearing aids, turn back around, <laughs> right back to what he was doing. The, it was totally just not happening. And it, it wouldn't matter if you brought a sacrificial lamb to the, the table to have this discussion. He just couldn't be bothered. He didn't last very long, but... Yeah. Well, you know, that's interesting, right? I mean, this is one of those things, you know, you talk about sort of DevOps and culture and all that kind of stuff and the, the organizations that sort of understand that, like, that don't play. Like, yeah. you can pull that for a while, but not going not gonna to play long. Yeah, that, that, that's just like they're putting a, a tourniquet around a snake. At some point, the data just is not going to flow through and out the other end, so... Yeah. Everyone has to play. Well, actually, you know, it's funny. I actually tweeted this the other day sort of randomly, and it wasn't about this, but it was like, if you constantly say no to things, you'll be surprised how much effort people put into trying to work around you. And it doesn't matter if you're a database, a DBA or an engi- release engineer. It doesn't matter. 
or if you or if your answer to every request is no, then they will route around the damage, as it were. Right? Yeah. Uh, that's not. It's not going to work that way long term. Interesting article. Next up, we have. Let's see. Oh, GitHub announced. I guess it was this last week. The GitHub Student Developer Pack, which. If you actually go look at the post, is there's like an amazing number of partners, and it's basically a sort of pack to get students and teachers started on hacking various things. Did any of you see this announcement? It's pretty interesting. Adam Bitnami, Crowdflower, DigitalOcean, DNS, DNS Simple. Yeah, I saw, I, I saw this. This would have been nice to have when I was back in grad school. Yeah, I know. No kidding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was nice that they actually, Unreal Engine, Travis CI, Stripe, lots of companies, SendGrid, Screen Hero, Orchestrate. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm really happy to see this because this kind of reminds me of, I know Microsoft with their developer, I don't know if they still do this. They've been, a lot of you know campuses, at least here in, in the United States, they've been pushing their uh, the Microsoft sort of developer it included Visual Studio and you know all those type of stuff. So it's it's nice to see GitHub kind of put something similar. Having together. a story, yeah. So you know it's funny, Yusuf. I don't know if you remember this, but do you remember at Cal Poly in the computer science department they literally had a palette of Visual Studio boxes back in the day, and you're supposed to get a license, but they just kind of put it outside, and so people just grabbed the boxes and they had the licenses inside, and you could like, I mean, I was you know I was a Linux head, so I didn't give a but you could grab copies of Visual Studio, and I don't know if you remember this, but people started selling them. Yeah, on I <laughs> yeah, it was kind of funny. But yeah, I know it's it's actually nice to see that uh, um there is actually a, a sort of I hate using this term but it but it fits the a credible story for that sort of stack in an open source context. Which you can actually do the cloud and and the source control and all that stuff and and DNS and actually make a real application. So it'll be interesting to see if they have certain websites or whatever in the next six to 12 months, that became a big deal, but they all started sort of with this student developer pack. Yeah. I, I wouldn't be surprised if there were stories coming out from this, like, or even a competition coming out from this. Yeah, yeah, that'd be awesome, competition, yeah. So last up tonight, we always do kind of fun stories from time to time. Uh, Yusuf, you pointed us at this as well. Reverse engineering Star Wars Yoda stories, which is a game, Star Wars Yoda stories, and lots of hex editing, I guess. Yeah, yeah, no, great article. You know, I know we, we've brought up stuff like this in the past, uh, Prince of Persia, uh, Zelda. Zelda, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so the, yeah, I played Yoda stories. It's a, it's a kind of a, like a tile-based game. Uh, I think it came out in the late 90s. But anyhow, the, the article's really long, but it you know, talks about um, going through, and I guess the, the goal was to kind of try and get the individual tiles of like Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader and you know, Yoda. And so yeah, the article kind of delves into how they kind of went through and did that. So long read, but you could probably get through it with a cup of coffee. And, yeah, well, especially if you like gaming stuff like this. I always love seeing people that, because I, 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 this is not a skill I have at all, just disassembling you know, executables and then breaking them apart and changing yeah. them and doing things. It's, it's amazing. I always love like geeky, especially game game stuff like this. Seth is not is not on tonight, and he could probably tell us a lot about this, but uh, I love people that just break that stuff apart. Uh, it's not a skill lots of people have, myself included. Yeah, yeah the, cool, the cool thing, um, I just remember this, the cool thing about the article was that I guess the, the, uh, the tiles themselves, I guess they were pulled out in different sort of um, color layers, so... Mm-hmm. Um, they had to go through and, 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 you know, get it in layers until they could kind of, I guess, combine them and then, you know, get the actual full, 
like color, you know, the full colored version of the actual um, tile. So yeah, yeah, pretty pretty interesting read, by the way. It's worth going to the article just to see what they give Luke Skywalker for a vehicle. Yes, there is that punchline at the end. <laughs> yes. Last up tonight, uh, we would just like to announce a new release. Mr. Cheslock, Pete Cheslock, has a new addition to his family. Noah Benjamin Cheslock joined actually this morning, uh, the day of the taping at 9.36. His, his birthday is today, and he is zero years old. And so we just wanted to uh, welcome him to the world. Mother and baby are doing great, and they're willing to the photo in, uh, in the show notes. And apparently father is doing great, so yes. Congrats, Pete. Yeah. Congrats, yeah. man. Welcome, Noah. All right, so next up we are talking Jenkins. Jenkins in big environments, Jenkins in small environments. Jenkins, Jenkins, Jenkins. Next up, show, show. Welcome back to the ship, though. So, Jenkins, it's that tool that we all use. Some of us love to hate it, and lots of us rely on it every single day. We wanted to talk a little bit about the various aspects of actually using Jenkins in a production environment, uh, just because it is such a pervasive tool, and, and talk a little bit about the lessons that the crew here has learned and ways that you can make your own Jenkins experiences better. This is actually something that I had been working on uh, with a current client. Like, literally today we were working through, like, Jenkins stuff and how to make it better. And it is interesting when you look at Jenkins at a large scale, like, there are some, you know, Jenkins is the tool that we all have to kind of throw into the environment, and then suddenly a year later you have hundreds of jobs and everybody looking at the dashboard, and it's actually a big deal. So this was something that uh, Mike and Yusuf, this is something close to their hearts. So large-scale Jenkins installations, what are we screwing up? <laughs> Everything. Tell us. Everything. <laughs> Everything. No, no. Writing code inside the Jenkins jobs. Oh, well. <laughs> don't even get me started on that. We're not even there yet. <laughs> That's my big pet peeve. I know, I know. It's not even on the list, too, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, isn't it? Yeah, that's my big pet peeve because it obscures everything else and then you're a mess. Right. Yeah, that, that code, yeah. So we'll get to that for sure. Or we can get to it now. <laughs> but the first thing I always observed is the Jenkins box grows from your desktop because, you know, oh. someone, someone decided to build it on just desktop and then they realized people are using it, so they actually allocated a server, and the next thing you know, it's actually critical to the business, and no one knew it until it goes down. And so and when you say goes down, it means somebody, you know, was vacuuming and uh, hit the plug on the person's desk under their under their desk, and, and that's why it probably, went down. Yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah. So, I mean, one of the first things you should be doing with Jenkins is definitely making sure you have, you're treating it like a first-class citizen in your infrastructure, so monitoring your Jenkins and treating it like any other server. That is like one of the first things you should be doing before you do anything else. I mean, Yusuf, you, you and I talked a little bit beforehand about our experiences with Jenkins. Like in my previous company, we spent some time, we realized very quickly that we didn't have any metrics and understanding what was going on in Jenkins. And so we built Graphite Server with, uh, we used a tool called JMX Trans Agent to get essentially JVM stats out of there using StatsD and this JVM Trans Agent and, and Graphite. It took an engineer about a day to do that. So from my perspective, my experience very simple to get that up and running. But this, the story I have, I, when I talk about Jenkins, I have to talk about it in two cases. The Netflix perspective, which is at massive scale, and then my experiences prior to Netflix. So getting so, a handle on the performance of Jen Jenkins is like job one, right? So let me ask this, because you talked about monitoring, and I think that's, you know, that's one of those things that goes to the sort of operational nature of 
you know, the argument, right? It's a, it, it's a service that sort of creeps in and you don't know that your business actually relies on these machines. One of my favorites too is not just the master. A lot of times are like people, a lot of times people are like, oh, the, you know, the master is important. We have to actually operationalize that. So they do that. And then maybe they have some jobs on some Linux boxes, whatever. That's fine. And this is the thing I see all the time. They need to do Mac builds because we're going to do a mobile iOS app. Where's that Mac build? It's on some Mac mini on some person's desk, right? It's the slaves sort of go throughout the company and they connect to this master. Right. Um, so a couple questions there. First one, you know, you're talking about monitoring and that's really important. And you gave some examples for monitoring the, the master. How do you deal with the slave machines and the, how do you monitor those? How, do you have any tips for that? And then also, is there a way to actually tell like you know a way that you found from both the process perspective and then actually a technology perspective like hey this person is connecting this Mac mini to my Jenkins instance and trying to run builds on it that sort of thing and be like no you, you should actually put that in a data center or something like that yeah so the unhelpful unicorn tip is at <laughs> Netflix we actually since we have freedom responsibility it's the teams who need that Jenkins slave responsibility to attach it to Jenkins and maintain it so we actually don't maintain it on their behalf. And, and so Yusuf and I were talking about a little bit beforehand about who has control over Jenkins and how much control you give out. I think in most environments, most people have a fairly locked down environment so you can control who has does what on Jenkins. And then I think, like I said, the unhelpful tip because we are a unicorn and we do things slightly differently is that we, do, we allow teams to manage it themselves. So I don't know if anyone else has conflicting experiences with Jenkins. You're talking about you're talking about the slaves, right? Yeah, I would say that custom slaves or, or one-off slaves. So yeah. um, we manage a fleet of Linux slaves, and and my previous companies we've always done Linux or Unix slaves, and then. If someone needed something special, that was always probably a massive problem. Yeah, it's, it's funny you mentioned that, Mike, because I, mean, I don't man, uh, manage a Jenkins environment now. I'm in a, in a different role, but in my last role um, where we did, so the team that I was on, we were kind of discussing, should we have one-off kind of Jenkins slaves or should everything kind of just run anywhere? So we basically kind of came up with the idea that you should be able to take a build and run it on any slave. Now, Granted, that's that can be a little different, you know, difficult depending on the platform that you're working with and you know that type of thing. But I find that not having special slaves kind of makes things easier, yeah. especially when you're able to say, okay, yeah, the, you know, well, you know, when you're bringing somebody new on the team or you know somebody's left or that type of thing, and you can just say, here's a Jenkins slave, here's another one. They both they're both able to run any and every build we throw at them. But I realize that that's not always easy to, to do. So uh, let me ask this, Yusuf. I mean, are you basically arguing, which I see this all the time, and I, I actually don't know why it is this way, but you see this all the time where the slaves, whatever they are, whether they be Linux, Mac, Windows, people don't configuration manage them like anything else in their infrastructure. And it's not, confusing That's not to me. true for everybody, but they should. Yeah. No, but no, it, no. It takes no. them I, a I, long time to get there. Like, yeah, they exactly, just don't, exactly. They have to be like... Yeah. They have to be tortured by lots of like failing slaves and spending too much time helping other people figure out why slaves aren't doing whatever people need them to do before yeah. they will. The ideal state for me for me is treat your slaves like like trash and throw them out. Yeah. Because eventually they do get configuration drift, and if you come in with that mentality, <laughs> you eliminate a whole slew of problems. It's easier said than done for sure, but I think that's the ideal state to get to, which is you're managing the configuration of your slaves. You you can bring them up with a push of a button, and then you can throw them out too. That's that's a happy place. Now it's interesting, right? Because it seems like the name of the game is configuration 
hate to say this is like location, 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 but it's configuration, configuration, configuration. And what I mean by that is you've got you've got the sort of slave or executor configuration that you have to worry about. Um, I think a lot of people, this is the other mistake that you see, and I see this all the time, right, is that the master has no configuration management. People can't rebuild it. So that's one issue. And then, Sasha, to your point, the bit about people typing things in the Jenkins box and no one knows when it changes and that whole thing. I know that... Even just my, debugging the process behind the, the workflow is terrible if you don't yeah, know yeah. What, what's well, going on with that. But I know, um, Mike, one of your colleagues, Justin Ryan, one of his big pet projects is is the job uh, DSL plugin and yep. the ability to basically create and specify jobs programmatically and then be able to put them in source control so that you don't actually have that problem as it were, right? the traditional version of that problem. Yeah, so the Jenkins job DSL is essentially a plugin for Jenkins that allows you to write a Groovy script that defines in this DSL the configuration of your Jenkins job. In the DSL, essentially, the objects in the DSL map to the objects in the configuration screen. And if you ever use Jenkins, you get to know how lovely that is <laughs> screen and how dynamic it is. So it how allows, confusing. Yeah, yeah. So you have essentially a single Groovy script or multiple Groovy scripts that can be used to define that configuration. And then you would build a seed job, which basically just checks that file in version control. And as that file changes, it runs that Groovy script and updates your job or jobs. So you can have single job DSL script essentially manage your whole build pipeline in theory. So. And I know that uh, Pete, who's not here tonight, obviously, because of Bebe, he talked about this really kind of neat thing that he had written using the DSL plugin that basically it, it like monitored GitHub. And whenever anybody created a new GitHub repo in their organization, it set up all the jobs. Like, mm. And this, these were chef cookbooks, so the testing mm. was understood. It's like the, the thing you, you run, a kitchen CI or whatever, the test they wanted to run. But they would set up that all up based entirely on GitHub repository creation, which I thought was pretty cool. I mean, point being, you can actually set up some really interesting automation around events using the DSL plugin. Yeah, my, my previous gig at, at Blackboard, we did something similar, except we, it was more of a self-service. So we just had a job on Jenkins that allowed someone to enter the name of the project in version control and where it was located, because we were using Perforce, and it would then... Go Perforce. <laughs> I gotta, I gotta say it. I gotta say well, it. I'm not, not gonna, I'm not gonna to that conversation. <laughs> this is not a version control no, episode. It's not, I gotta say it. But and then they that job would then in turn create pass those arguments into a, a job DSL script and would create their whole build pipeline per our instructions. So it allowed teams to self serve and create their own pipelines per the best practice that the build tools team had set forth. Yeah. Yeah. So you said you had a couple of stories about specifically the use of the DSL uh, yeah. plugin was that. Was that one of them? That was one of them, yeah. The other one is is at Netflix, which is a little different use, is we don't have consistency in our jobs. So at Blackboard, most of the jobs were supposed to be uniform, and the pipeline's supposed to be uniform. And at Netflix, we, you know, our team essentially is servants to the rest of the organization, so we don't really have that option. So we just... Every team has their own job DSL script sitting in their projects, and they manage that. So in in the root of their project, they manage they they create that file and manage it, and then they will they will create the C job that monitors that file and then updates their pipeline. And, and when I say every team, I should not say every team. Mm-hmm. So the ones that use that infrastructure. The ones that use that approach. Yeah, it, it's a nice tool for providing automation 
for multiple pipelines across your organization. So good way to scale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, it's interesting because there seems to be sort of this level that you jump to where it's like somebody sets up Jenkins and they kind of throw it up in the environment and then everybody uses it. They use it to do builds, blah, 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 testing, whatever it may be. And then there's like, so there's that use case, but then there is certainly kind of the use case you were talking about where there's this other level of providing Jenkins as a service. And so the thing is you actually are not interested in in the config page and all of that stuff, you actually don't care about that. You're providing it at scale to your entire organization as a service. Could you talk a little bit about some of the challenges there and then what the differences are? Because, I mean, all of us have sort of thrown Jenkins on a master and then you've got a couple of executors and you do some builds and everybody's happy. You know, that's very different than if you're sort of doing the derivative kind of meta as a service thing. Yeah, I mean, the problem with that Jenkins as a service is that you're basically, you're giving everybody the keys to the car and you haven't taught them necessarily all how to drive yet, right? So they can they can essentially bring down the whole company if they did something wrong. Like what Sasha was saying, like adding scripts in there that actually did something bad in Jenkins and it is possible to do some bad things inside of well, Jenkins. Well, true, print, hello. <laughs> System.megxit. So it's very, it can be easy to do that, and we've had to put some safeguards in place. Like we've found over time that, for instance, sometimes deleting a job will create a deadlock throughout all of Jenkins because older versions of Jenkins have concurrency issues inside of the core code. Not, not a happy place to be in. So providing some safeguards, but just enough to make sure that the company is impacted and yet still allowing people to be free, I think is is where at least we have we've gotten to at Netflix, and I, I think. Whenever I say that in Netflix, it's hard to escape the fact that our culture enables us to do that, and I'm fully aware that other cultures may not enable you to do that. Well, Sasha, I know that you've worked in uh, lots of different types of cultures. You've seen a lot of different types of cultures, and I know that you've used Jenkins in those environments. And I know that you've done Jenkins at scale. You've, you've sort of done that, huh? that type of stuff. I'm curious, kind of comparing and contrasting with Netflix, that has that very sort of freedom, responsibility ethos. How does that all kind of ring to you in terms of where maybe that sort of working model is not as well as established from a cultural perspective? What kind of things do you run into when you're trying to get people to use, you're trying to convince people to use Jenkins, but then it's like, but don't go crazy. Like, don't, I haven't ever you know, had that problem. Really? No, I've never had anybody be like, Jenkins, are you kidding? The closest I've come, well, that's not entirely true. There I was, was the say, one person. I've had that like, problem. It was just the sysadmin who thought Cobbler like, was like the best thing ever. Remember him? <laughs> Yeah. Like, he didn't like anything, though. He didn't like Chef. He didn't like Puppet. He didn't like anything. And he didn't like Jenkins, either. He didn't like anything but Subversion. Hey, shut up. I like Subversion. I don't have any problem with Subversion. He didn't like anything. So, yeah, I had a problem with him, but that was him and not the tool. I've never had people say, be like, no, Jenkins is horrible. Why would we use that? But And I think that, actually, a lot of places, there you just have to have a lot of freedom around the Jenkins infrastructure or uh, your resources you manage it will be too constrained. I mean, even places that I've been where that's um, not entirely the case, like even though people had to use collective slaves and things like that, they still had the power to make their own jobs. And all you can really do is, it's a lot like Chef in that you can give people information and you can give them help when they need it and you can beg them to not cut off their toes, but um, you can't babysit them every day and some people are going to lose fingers. Did you ever have a problem with the Jenkins installation that wasn't properly operationalized where it's like, oh, the entire company is relying on this for a Chef pipeline or a, a code pipeline? Yeah, we had to iterate over stuff. I mean, the Jenkins stuff is the installed in a lot of different places and one place I was at you know it was on it was in the OpenStack and out in EC2 and none of it was automated really when I got there and I certainly didn't do a lot of the work to automate it although I asked about it a lot 
and we got to the point where we could pop down slaves and pop them back up again anytime because, like, it just got to the point where we didn't have time to be constantly troubleshooting other people's problems with doing builds. They'd be like, all right, we'll, we'll just rebuild the slave and you can do your build again. And, you know, people could roll their eyes at us, but, uh, you know, when you're managing that many different things, you have to make choices. So, you know, and the thing is, is they were really good with the Jenkins core was set up well before I got there, too, in that you can't automate a lot of Jenkins for the same reason that you can't automate a lot of artifactory install and stuff because they're a Java process with a GUI. <laughs> and um, so they actually had, like, a basic Jenkins install, and then they had the core config backed up on a, on a shared drive. Not a shared drive, but, you know, in the cloud. <laughs> S3. It was like an S3 story, yeah. <laughs> Dropbox. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dropbox. Drop yeah, the corporate S3. Dropbox. But yeah, um, so drop the, the Jenkins can... config was stored at an S3 type place, and it was reproducible at will without too much downtime, although there was no AJ. So I think a lot of people, Mike, you know, you've mentioned Netflix a number of times. They're going to kind of think immediately, OMG, did you do all of this? Were all of your slaves in the cloud? Were all of your... Masters in the cloud, are they? Give us the 411 on that. So, no, no. I mean, we, we are, we're in the process of exiting the data center. Yeah. And so our Jenkins still lives in the data center. And we're actually, we've run into so many kind of scale problems with so many teams and so many jobs and on Jenkins. We've actually decided to go to a multi-master approach, which... All right, let me stop you there. Yeah. I'm going to stop you right there because this is, I think, so a couple things. Uh, I've been in environments where you actually find out there are two or more masters and there is, like, absolutely no reason for it from the standpoint of, like, each master has two jobs, so it's not a scaling problem. The question I have for you, I think this is very interesting and I think a lot of listeners will, will wonder, what was the criteria for having you decide, oh, we need multi-master? Was it just different teams needed different requirements and we wanted to support that? Or what was the driving force behind, yeah, we got to do the, the multi-master? For us, it was it was a lot of different teams were stepping on each other's toes. Uh-huh, so okay. We, had, we, we have about 8,500 jobs, probably about 5,000 active. We run about 3,000 builds, 4,000 builds a day. So we had a lot of... We had a fair amount of time where we were spending keeping Jenkins up and running. Uh, okay, yeah. And it just got to the point where we realized we needed to, to solve this problem, it, it just kind of the, the Jenkins scaling problem. Right. And so we decided to move, and we also needed to move Jenkins to the cloud. Mm-hmm. So that kind of served both purposes, because then we could start moving masters to the cloud one at a time and pulling teams' jobs out of the main master. And then teams are on... New ma- their own master are 100% in the cloud. And then as we slowly migrate the rest of the company, we will be 100% in the cloud. So does that answer your question, Paul? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one of those things, you know, I worked with someone who worked at Yahoo, and he, he used to say that their original sort of Jenkins installation was so big that when they actually brought it up, it literally, and I, I mean, this seemed massive to me that it would take this long, but it literally, he said, it took 45 minutes for the, the Jenkins master to initialize because it had to read in the config and set up all that stuff, and, and they literally had that many slaves and builds and all this kind of stuff. It just took that long, which is kind of like, wow, that's, that, that's a big... Art, yeah, ours doesn't take that long at all. But we do have a cats plugin on the main page so that when you go to Jenkins, it doesn't load the all jobs and right. take five minutes to load that page. Right. <laughs> yeah, so right. rather than seeing all the jobs, you get to see a nice pretty picture of cats. Right. <laughs> Actually, this is interesting. You were, t- we were talking about scaling, talking about self-service builds as a service. How do you handle the whole kind of auditing 
audit trail, uh, who can do what, who can delete. This is one thing I've never actually understood about Jenkins is why they have the option to delete a build you've done. Like, delete the logs, delete what it seems like, kind of rebasing, rewriting history. Stuff you'd want to keep, unless you were cleaning lots of jobs up according to some sort of policy. But that's a big question, right? Like this access policy, access control question. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, like I said, you know, my, my last role, uh, we had a pretty locked down Jenkins environment, and I think the uh, sort of ACLs in Jenkins can be a little confusing. Generally, the approach that I took was kind of lock everything down and then kind of give people minimal access, you know, like read-only access, but there are things that you can do, like, and... and this stuff needs to be tested, so you can use like a project per project or per uh, per job sort of ACL approach. And so what I set up Jenkins, I had it hooked up to Active Directory. They were the last company that I was at used um, Active Directory. Oh, huh. uh, so we did that uh, here too. Uh, one of the clients, uh, they hooked up the LDAP. Yeah, yeah, so I, I took advantage of that because what I did is I worked with the, the Windows admins to set up groups, and then I would say, okay, you could have, I don't know, testers in this group, developers in that group. Uh, I worked with a team of scientists, so, you know, scientists in that group, etc. and then um, within Jenkins itself say, okay, everybody has read-only access. Certain people can have execute access on, like, I don't know, Selenium-type jobs, or and then maybe some other people can actually go in and modify the um, the job config. But, I mean, it, it is kind of a pain to have to go through and set that stuff up. The other thing that I also kind of ran into was whenever you're building, like, external tools to kind of, um, like, restfully um, pull stuff out of Jenkins or, or push um, stuff to Jenkins, um, some of the ACLs can kind of get a little wonky there, too. So, but yeah, definitely take advantage of the, you know, I'd recommend delegating authentication to something like Active Directory or LDAP. Don't use the Jenkins internal security thing. And then right. per project, you can also set up ACLs, which comes in handy depending on what you're doing. So shifting gears a little bit, I have a question about this because I think everyone that has installed Jenkins has seen this. It's kind of a big deal when you see it because it's kind of confusing. The Jenkins plugins page, because there's like approximately 8 billion plugins and it's not clear which ones are good, which ones are bad, which ones are even tested, which ones sort of conflict. The other thing that I like to say a lot and people sort of scoff at this and then they go look at their Jenkins installation and suddenly I'm not making fun of them or it's not a joke, where I say nobody uses Jenkins. There are zero people on the planet that use Jenkins. They use Jenkins plus their favorite 5, 8, 10, 62 plugins. What have been your experiences with that? Because well, that is a very confusing part of interacting with Jenkins, and because there are plugins that can totally change the way you interact with Jenkins entirely. And I think that's kind of weird for people that one plugin could just change the entire experience so much. Yeah, the, the magic of Jenkins, I think the popular Jenkins is its plugins. Like I don't think Jenkins like Firefox. Is, yeah, it, it's not that compelling, and there's other products that probably do that better. But it's just the sheer volume of plugins, and that's that's why it's. That's why how it's gotten so pervasive in our industry. There but is there a problem with that? I mean, because the thing that I see a lot is weird interactions between plugins because different people want different functionality, so they sort of install the plugins. It's unclear that the testing story for those plugins is really well known. There probably isn't any testing story. Like, between so plugin and other integrations. Right? I, I think it's pretty much up to whoever's using the plugin to kind of test it. I mean, I've, I've run into some pretty major issues. I was just talking about Active Directory. 
So the Active Directory plugin, if you used it, you know, kind of early on, had some some pretty major issues. And I think they've even had a you know a couple of security related issues. Um, upgrading, there are certain plugins that are core, or I consider core to Jenkins, that you don't just want to willy nilly kind of upgrade without testing. And Active Directory is one of them. Does that mean you have like a testing Jenkins infrastructure? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Well, so that tells you <laughs> – it's funny. I've heard people talk about it. Uh, I've actually never seen it, only because it's like there. that would require two people's desks, not one. <laughs> it only takes one plug-in upgrade that then wipes out configuration data on your Jenkins config files for you to realize you probably need a test environment to yeah, test then to make sure. Times. Yeah, and I'm speaking from experience. <laughs> so, yeah, definitely having a test environment is, is crucial, and upgrading – Testing the upgrade of plugins, interaction of plugins, and then testing the upgrades of Jenkins itself too. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I, 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 yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with Mike. And the other thing that, that you know on the plugin side you want to take advantage of is I don't know how far back the Jenkins development team introduced this feature, but you can actually pin plugins. So the idea is, is that let's say you, you want to do an upgrade, but you have a plugin that works at that particular version, and you don't want that plugin to get upgraded. You can pin it. To basically say, you know, to tell Jenkins, don't upgrade this plugin. Now, that can cause some issues with plugins that have dependencies on other plugins. So, in general, before deciding on using a plugin, go look at the plugin page, look at the dependencies, and I'd actually look at the um, the bug reports and, and, and see, like, what are the major bugs with this particular plugin? Yeah, treat it like any kind of external library or uh, a software component that you're going to be bringing into your organization. Yeah, I, I definitely focus on also when the last commit was to that project as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. Abandonware. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Unless you're willing to take it over, you know. <laughs> so you were talking about sort of testing Jenkins and managing Jenkins and that kind of stuff. I mean, plugins and pre-testing them. You had a note about sort of managing Jenkins with Jenkins, which sort of is this very sort of inception-y <laughs> Kind of, sort of, how many turtles down do you want to go? I'm assuming people are doing that. How, how do they manage Jenkins with Jenkins? Like, how does that work? So, yeah, this particular note is, is a reference to a talk that a colleague of mine, or a guy on my team, Gareth, gave on how... Uh, oh, Gareth both. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, we've had him on the show. Yeah. yeah. So he hey, gave Gareth. A you Shout out to him. Put it in the show notes. Yeah, exactly. But basically, he had, we have a bunch of jobs that run housekeeping on Jenkins, so... They'll scan for jobs that haven't been run in like 90 days and just archive them or shut them down. So we basically do have a fair amount of jobs that just run against the Jenkins job space to make, do some housekeeping because at that, when you start getting to a certain scale, any automation you want to do to clean up or, or audit the jobs in Jenkins, you're going to have to automate. And you might as well do it with Jenkins, right? Because okay. it's the golden hammer. <laughs> yes. So on that note, though, you're talking about, I mean, sort of managing Jenkins. Jenkins does do LTS uh, releases, long-term service releases. Do you tend to, do you all tend to run the latest packages and keep updating them, or have you been bitten by that as well? Should we all be sticking on Ubuntu 10 only for <laughs> Jenkins. <laughs> Eventually, after running Jenkins for a while, I've switched to LTS. And then you're still going to run into the same problems of upgrading because whenever you want to upgrade, you're just going to have to put a lot of time and effort into just testing and finding our combination of plugins that work. And sometimes you can't. And sometimes there's a version of a plugin that you just is not, not going to work with that version of the LTS and you can't upgrade. And I've been in that position as well. The upgrade story with Jenkins needs a lot of work, a lot of work, even with the LTS. And so I'm kind of encouraged to see that the Jenkins company, CloudBees, is actually focusing just on Jenkins and not doing platform as a service as well. 
hopefully we'll see a lot of support and upgrades in this area. Yeah, I, t- I totally agree with what you're, with what you're saying, Mike. I mean, I think, um, you know, there definitely has to be, you know, a lot of work done on the sort of um, upgrade scenario. I personally have not run with the uh, with the LTS, the long-term service or support version of Jenkins, primarily because what I find is that there's just so many good improvements to the mainline of Jenkins that I, you know, I almost immediately want to pull that in. Um, the one thing that I can remember is there was a lot of work done on how much time Jenkins would take to uh, start up. I'm thinking this was maybe about a year and a half, two years ago, where maybe maybe longer, where basically instead of lazy loading a lot of the job config, everything would get loaded at startup time. And if you had a ton of jobs configured to, to run, you know, you'd spend a fair amount of time kind of loading that stuff up and, and you're, whether you're running it in Winstone or Tomcat or whatever, your container would, would spend a lot of time getting that thing loaded. So they threw in, you know, some, I guess, the developers went in and, and cleaned that stuff up and they introduced lazy loading. And so I don't know how long that took to get into LTS, but I was like, yes, I, I want that that big feature. So, yeah, I don't know. But I I think it, it depends on your organization. I think you have to kind of look at your requirements, but there's something to be said about keeping on the bleeding edge. Yusuf, how, how often have you upgraded Jenkins when you're... That's always I, an interesting story. Yeah, I started off upgrading monthly. Then as more and more people in the organization started to rely on Jenkins, as we started to kind of build everything out, it was it moved to quarterly updates. So it sounds like you're basically saying, it's funny you were mentioning Perforce. We used to talk about when to do Perforce updates. This is the thing, right? You need to treat Jenkins like the rest of that infrastructure. If, if you're not running GitHub or something, your version control server, uh, would it be Perforce or Subversion or Git internally? And backing up, backing up. So Sasha mentioned that they backed up her, in a previous gig, her... Can you do that Jenkins. with Jenkins? Manage, is that part of the managed Jenkins with Jenkins? <laughs> no, we don't, but... I don't think we do, but you can. Like, there are J- Jenkins backup plugins, and I've tried them and dismissed them, mm. but I would just do the standard file system backups that you would do with any other server in your infrastructure. Because, because at the end of the day, Jenkins is storing everything on the file system. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, it makes it easy. There's no data store other than the file system. So uh, one of the things you were talking about, we talked about this earlier, this whole sort of spinning up slaves and dynamic stuff. Apparently there's a plugin or a way to do that kind of in a, in a more awesome way. What's what's that? The, was it Apache Mesos? Is that the... Yeah. Yeah, so Apache Mises is kind of like a, a project that's that's like a distributed task runner, and there's somebody wrote a plugin, Jenkins plugin, that um, if you've got an existing Mesos um, infrastructure, um, you can actually dynamically you know spin up uh, Jenkins slaves. I've never personally used it. But I think I watched a couple or maybe a YouTube video from some of the Mesos committers um, presenting you know the the integration point, and it looks pretty interesting. I do know that. Jenkins Enterprise has a VMware-ish type equivalent feature, but given that this is open, you know, Mises is open source, and maybe you know, for folks who want to dynamically kind of spin up slaves based on you know load and and um, stuff that you have in the build queue, it may be worthwhile looking into. Yeah, I, I feel like this is once you've done Jenkins enough and you've managed enough slaves and, and and people keep asking for more, you watch that queue. Something like this seems much more attractive for sure. But it doesn't sound like that's where you would want to start off per se. But maybe you would. I don't know. Well, that's well, you know one interesting. So I, I wanted to ask uh, the panel question related to that sort of indirectly. We've all seen this pattern. 
and we talked, we made a number of jokes about it earlier, about how Jenkins comes into the environment and you know, understand that the entire company is running off of some person's 286 with the Java 16-bit VM. And so my question is, that is such a pervasive pattern with Jenkins specifically. In fact, I've never heard any other tool that has that story as commonly ingrained whenever people talk about it. My question for you all is, why is that? Why is that pattern so common with Jenkins in our industry? Why is it so common that we find that there's this tool that everybody relies on, but it is totally not operationalized at all? You hear that story like constantly. What is it about Jenkins or what it does or why do you guys think that's the case? I've seen over and over again in my use cases where you know I've, I've come from some pretty massive companies and the problem is always that the original owners of the CI system are just slow to react. What you were talking about earlier, Paul, where development is sort of like water or electricity, it just takes the path of the least resistance. And so the CI server that's been provided to the development staff just is not, the, the ACL is wrong or not configured properly or out of date. So pretty soon somebody has just quickly set something up saying, oh, don't worry about it, we got this, it's like on my desktop, we'll worry about it later. Later never comes around, and before you know it, like you said, there's you know, three, 400 jobs on this thing, and now that box that's under Bob's desk has become the production thing. I can say for sure some of the stuff I've done at my current place, like we've treated it from day one as the first-class citizen, so it's always been productionalized, but... I, again, like I think that's sort of the the tipping point for most is that they're not getting what they need from what's been provided, and they work around it, like you said. I, I think it's easy to dismiss initially because it's so easy for for me at least. It was it can be so easy to get set up. I mean, you can essentially start it up in one shell command. It, it's it's you grab the the war file and then just run the war file. So you don't need much to get started, and and then maybe when you bring it up, it's hard to take it seriously based on the GUI. <laughs> you write a check for it, so um, <laughs> you know there's there's probably a couple of those elements at play there, but it probably speaks to a lot of how organizations don't take continuous integration seriously as well. I see that a lot of people do take stuff like that seriously, and I think that sometimes it's just a, a matter of prioritization, and then things get grown faster than people think they will, too. So there's that. I think a lot of people do take it pretty seriously, but um, a lot of times you have one or two people responsible for a lot of stuff. Yeah. Do you, Sasha, do you find that at your clients for Chef? Like, do you find that's where people they take it seriously? But I find that I found that not just with Chef, but with uh, all of the work that I've done over the past few years, you generally have an overwhelmed team taking care of a lot of tools, and if they're not really lucky, or if they're you know. A lot of places have combined both their ops and their tooling, and it's not until they mature a bit that they realize that they have to separate. Yeah, my, my experience has been that I've been in a lot of organizations that have continuous integration, but it's usually the wrong continuous integration. So they've bought a suite of products that some salesperson told them was going to solve all their problems, whether it's Agile or now probably it's going to be DevOps, I don't know. And those tools provide more obstacles to the development organization, and so they work around it by standing up their own Jenkins. Obstacles. And yeah, sorry. So, you know, it's funny. I That would actually be my answer. I, I, I think there are a lot of answers, but one of the things that I see is that, uh, and I've done this, where it's like, you know, I, I've complained before on the show. I'll probably complain again on the show about the fact that it's like this stuff matters, this this infrastructure, specifically Jenkins or whatever your CI system is, matters, and it's so always under-operationalized. And I just committed the sin just recently where it was like, 
I need to show you what a continuous integration server looks like. So we're going to throw it on this random VM, and we're all going to start using it. And now, not 400 jobs, like 20 jobs. And now, though, some strategic initiative the company needs to get done by a certain deadline all relies on Jenkins. And I'm like, as the, pointing out, the second you're done with that, you need to actually take a couple weeks configuration manage all of it, operationalize it. But I, I think when you're trying to just make continuous integration visible to people, like what is it, maybe they're confused, and I, I know that's hard to believe, but some organizations don't haven't ever seen it and don't get it because they've never seen it. Uh, it, it. It is, to your point, Mike, easy to throw it up. You know, double-click the installer. If it's on Windows, you get a nice little thing. It's a service you start. You can have a job running pretty much immediately, and then you can show instead of tell. But right. then that that becomes so uh, successful that suddenly the company is now running on it, but nobody ever took the time to actually go and revisit how it got there in the first place. One question I wanted to ask, a uh, kind of wrap-up question, what do you all think the future of Jenkins is? I have some kind of thoughts and survey data on this, which I'll share, but I'm curious what you all think. Yeah, I think that there's some interesting work. I mean, the last time I kind of uh, looked at some of the stuff that was going on in the Jenkins project, I know that they're really working on improving some of the core stuff, and the big thing that they want to do is allow people to kind of uh, script a, a job such that if the if the build fails kind of halfway through, uh, or or if you got like a set of like a pipeline and it and it kind of fails, that you can kind of you know replay. The, the, they're working on some sort of a workflow. There's like a workflow component that they're that they're working on. So and I think that that stuff is still experimental. I haven't really played with that, but that's something I think that's big that's coming down the pipeline. So I would I would like to see more of a I know there's some features like this, but more of a Travis CI type model where you're actually checking in your build configuration into your project and then managing it through a Git push. I think building that type of functionality would be very interesting, or even just saying monitor this Git, Git repository. But that build config lives in version control because I, I I think that that's a major that is a departure with how they do it now, and that's one of the pain. It's not the pain point, but it's something everybody struggles with. Yeah, and I think it wouldn't be too hard to solve, but you know, it, it would solve some problems that most of us have, which is, did something change, either my code or my build configuration? Right? Right. And you now have one place to look for that, just to solve that problem. The other thing I, I think is, is to talk about some of the problems we've seen is, like, bundling LTS or, or versions of Jenkins with a core set of plugins, a broader set of plugins that are commonly used, and saying these are all tested together. I think that would be useful to the community. Oh, yeah. Yeah, kind of kind of like what Chef does with, like... Chef DK. You know, yeah, well, and also, like, fully supported. Yeah, I just saw that today. For the yeah. I haven't done Chef in a while, and so I came back and I saw the Chef DK thing today. Yeah, yeah. EJ? Yeah, I, um, you guys are sort of already nailing all the points. Like, if there was a better way to, to manage the config outside of giant blobs of XML, I think that would help largely to be able to script away some of the... the XML should be against the law. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a giant fan of JSON to be either to be serious. It's, actually, it's easier to read than XML though. It is, but I mean, I yeah. don't demand. I don't demand JSON, but uh, yeah, well, anything with a place I can put a comment, that's what I want. Yeah. You know, like yeah. so. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm really hoping that evolves. I'm also hope, hoping Jenkins evolves away from Jelly for everything. And I don't know. There's there's a lot of like hodgepodge in the background there, but I shouldn't complain because I don't have time to com commit and make it better. So, Sasha. 
I don't know. I mean, you guys are really kind of covering everything. My big thing is don't put your code inside your Jenkins jobs. Write your code, in, I mean, even in Bash scripts, and then use Jenkins jobs to string them together. Otherwise, everything will be too obscure, and nobody will ever be able to problem-solve things, and you'll never be able to leave it. So from a Jenkins future perspective, I think my major sort of concern and, and ask of the Jenkins community, I was recently, I was, I was at uh, Chef Summit, Actually, but I've been to so many conferences. Chef Summit, and I, we were talking about Jenkins, and I, I asked everyone, who uses Jenkins? Raise your hand. And then I was like, keep your hands up if you like using Jenkins. And literally everyone except for two people put their hands down. That's because they I haven't think, used anything else then. Well, so here's the thing, though. I think that speaks to uh, – and, and then I actually ended up having a long conversation with Adam Jacob about this because I was like, oh, shit, I was just totally an ass in the presentation, and Adam Jacob was like, you know, he came up uh, and, and he was just like, you know, we were talking about it. it's not meeting a lot of the needs that people have. So we all use it because it's the best tool, but it's actually not that good. So here's the thing. I'm not slamming Jenkins. What I'm saying is I think from a future perspective, my concern for them, and I, at PuppetConf I saw um, our Tyler Croy, who's, who's on the Jenkins team, he, he said in his presentation, he said, no one is full-time working on Jenkins. So I think when you have a number of people that are trying to move from continuous integration to continuous delivery, to do that with Jenkins requires not only Jenkins, but a number of quite complicated plugins that change a lot of the fundamentals of how Jenkins works, and no one is responsible, full-time responsible for that. And those were his words, not mine. I find it interesting that he said that. I worry about Jenkins losing mindshare and traction because it's, it's, you know, it's like Firefox. It's the browser everyone used until they pissed them off enough and they switched to Chrome and there was something else that was good enough. Is it Go? I don't know. Is it something, is it BuildBot? I, I don't know. I mean, our Tyler Croy in his presentation said that, you know, he said, I have no stats to back this up, but I think Jenkins is the most popular open source continuous integration system on the planet. I, I believe him. It's the most used. Yeah, I, be I believe that to be true. My concern is I don't, I, I think they are getting a little fat and happy off of that. And I think that like subversion, they are letting corporate customers sort of drive the strategy and drive what they're doing. And their story for continuous delivery is, well, what, a, what do bigger companies that might pay certain companies things to implement? Like, this is a story with open source we've heard a gazillion times. We know how it ends. And I just don't feel like they are paying attention to... A lot of the things even you said that are problems that in a real environment where you care about operationalizing things, where you care about stuff that, that there's just not a really good story except for some untested plugin that hasn't been developed in six months or a year. I worry about that. And so that from a future perspective, I don't know that they'll be able to fix that, but it's the thing I would worry about. And honestly, uh, these days, if you don't have time to do an evaluation, use Jenkins. If you have time to do an evaluation, do an evaluation, and you, Jenkins may not win. Because the world is changing in huge ways under their feet, and I don't think they're responding very effectively, uh, which is sad. This is not an, an indictment of them or saying they suck. It's just I worry that they're just not responding. Yeah, I, I wonder if their recent shift, Cloudbees' shift towards focusing just on Jenkins, will change what you just said. Yeah, how recent is that? A uh, few weeks Oh, so we still don't know. I mean, I mean, they they just made well, that so change. I mean, like so. they, yeah, they, I'm looking at their. Sorry, no, they, they basically said Cloudbees becomes the enterprise. So it was on September 11th. So yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, we'll link to that definitely in the show notes. But but yeah, 
so either either way, it doesn't matter. It means the uh, Jenkins story is still unfolding. Yeah. Um, so yes, listeners, we would love to hear from you. What are what are your Jenkins horror stories? What are your tips and tricks? What are things that you would never ever use Jenkins for, or what are things that you would never not use Jenkins for? Let us know, crew at theshipshow.com or uh, Shipshow Podcast on the Tweet Sphere. You got to fit it all in 140 characters, but we would still love to hear it. And we will be back in a moment here on the Ship Show. Welcome back to the Ship Show. So far, the last segment tonight, DevOps, Dear Abby. We announced it and we got like zero people tweet us, which made me sad. But that's actually not true. We had people tweet us before I announced it. So we actually have some DevOps, Dear Abbeys for tonight. So our first DevOps, Dear Abby, comes from Philip Watts. He asks, any suggestions for explaining the value of social tools, IRC, SlideShare, etc., to an enterprise? EJ. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> I don't know. To me, it's all about um, increasing the rate at which your team or teams communicate. So I, I, I see the IRC thing. We use. We went through a, a couple of evolutions here. We used IRC, several different IRC servers, too. And then um, we used uh, HipChat for a while, and then now we're finally on... Slack, and there's talk about using Link and other things, but um, a lot of our decisions, by the way, uh, are made for security reasons and why we've moved away from things, but it, it has helped immensely, especially if you're a globally distributed company, just to be able to have sort of candid chats with anyone, uh, av- avoiding uh, Hubot abuse. Um, <laughs> it's really, really nice just to be able to have... And also, like, I work in an open space. I'm not sure if anyone else here does too, but sometimes with open spaces, you get the developer gopher effect where you start to have a conversation. You can see the heads pop up over the cubes, and before you know it, the sidebar conversation has become like a five-person debate. And to be able to just single somebody out or or create a a small chat room in one of these chat tools to have your discussion I think is hugely valuable. So, yeah, I... I, I don't know. I would really sell that as sort of like a, a communications boost to increase um, productivity within your development staff. I, we I, couldn't live. We couldn't live without it. Yes, sir. I think maybe you know come up with a compelling selling point, uh, and I don't know. Which maybe integrate, <laughs> well, uh, you could integrate uh, build failures, test failures. Oh, God, yeah, that's into, nice too. Into Have your to... chat and um, you know say that hey we're trying to be more social and get people or communicate build failures and test failures using this fancy chat tool. Let's you know it's going to increase productivity. Let's get it. Sasha. Well, I would say that I think that it is good to actually bring up the idea that you can do notifications and things in some of these chat tools. I bring up the fact that that the corporate tools that they're using don't actually meet the needs of the teams and say mm-hmm. things mm-hmm. like. What we really need to do is, in order to move faster, people need more information. And uh, we can get a lot of that information in HipChat, in Hubot, in, I guess, Slack. Anything that can take, like, an IRC notification or uh, something else, an integration that will take information from the CI systems and things like that, that gives us a lot of information. Also, every org, especially in these open space areas, has a problem with people getting up and lining up for help and information. And that makes it really hard to uh, burn through points on things in your in your iterations and um, mm. chat tools really help with that because it's asynchronous you know mm. you don't actually have to waste your time getting up and walking over to somebody who may or may not be able to help you right now and uh, a lot of times we don't need immediate help we just need information that will help us at some point during the day and so asynchronous chat with these tools is a lot easier sometimes to use and depending on the kind of 
environment you work in, not everybody can use all the tools either. And so sometimes it helps to have uh, a tool that you can kind of plug people into that isn't the corporate tool. Yep. Mike? I, I don't know. I, I, I HipChat or um, IRC, I'm kind of not a fanboy on those right now. Like, they tend to be noisy. I, I agree that there's... All right, leave. No, I'm serious. <laughs> I, I, there's no, they're noisy, and, and there's value for sure in having notifications there, but, like, I think that maybe I've just been in places where they've taken it too far, and um, it becomes really difficult to figure out which conversation's going on. So I, I'm, I'm not sure I would be pitching the value per se. But, you know, I've also been in places where I'm co-located with the whole team, so and the rest of the team, so it, there's value in that as well. But, so I'm not answering the question. <laughs> so this is what I would say. I think there's a couple things. Uh, if you are an organization that has remote people, and from a business perspective, a lot of organizations are scaling that way. They're finding good people that maybe don't want to live in. SF or New York or LA or wherever it is, um, they want to live where they want to live, and they're they're really good at their job. You have to have a good, understood sort of culture that can do chat and a tool that really supports that. So, if your company is doing that, not all companies are, but that can be one. The other thing, no matter what you're doing, uh, I'm actually working with a client that they don't do the, all the people are are local, uh, all of them except for one, but. They're all local, but uh, they sometimes have to do deploys and things during off hours. And this whole concept of being able to do chat ops and actually the value that just that conceptually brings, even if you are uh, in the same room, in the same building. I, I mean, I can remember working for companies like Cisco that were so big. Like, there was somebody in the other building and you didn't even want to get up and go talk to him just because it was another building, right? So there can be value in the tools there. I think there's a big difference between tools like Slack and IRC that I think don't have a lot of like the bells and whistles and, and integration in stupid ways with email and crap that like Link and some of these corporate tools have. Um, they're basically like chat, and, and I know Slack has a bunch of different integrations, but it seems they're not super distracting. They're actually usable integrations with like GitHub and stuff like that. They're not like, oh, you can email a message to your friend on Link or whatever kind of is going on. So, so I think actually y you can make the chat ops argument, not even if you're remote or distributed or whatever, but actually it helps you become a better operational organization. We're talking about operationalizing Jenkins earlier. You can actually actually get better at operationalizing uh, the work that you do, and the way that you do that is to sort of uh, funnel that through uh, a communication medium like something like IRC, so uh, or Slack or something like that. So I think there's value there, and that's how you can sell it. So next question. Uh, by the way, next question for DevOps, dear Abby. Cheating a little bit, I gave a presentation at the ASEAN <laughs> Summit. It was uh, on crossing the continuous delivery chasm. They actually used Confluence questions, which is a way to submit questions, uh, and I'll link to the questions page for my presentation. Um, and somebody asked a question that I totally punted on because I was like, ah, for the headlights, uh, and it's just because it's been a long time since I've used Java and stuff. So the question is, uh, I'm totally cheating, but I wanted to answer the question. was not technically a DevOps Zero Abbey question, but I think it's interesting. So Patrick Wiltrout asked me uh, during the presentation, how do you fit the Maven release plugin into continuous delivery EJ? Good. Yeah, we've, we've intentionally opted not to. Yeah, in, in general, we, we, 
we decided that we wanted a breakpoint between clicking that Maven release button and the AMI that popped out and actually rolling out that AMI to anywhere. Like, it has to be a conscious choice. However, uh, we use Asgard to manage our stuff. And again, if you're in AWS, this is a wonderful solution. Asgard has a whole bunch of nice REST endpoints. So you could have the baking process, like I just talked about, all glued together in Jenkins, and then the tail end of it poke this REST API with your new AMI ID and set up the next auto-scaling group, yada, yada, yada. I don't, I don't know. I'm probably the... We, we don't do it, so I'm probably not the best equipped person to answer this. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, my thoughts are 86, the uh, Maven release plugin, and use the Maven versions plugin. Oh, all right. Yeah. Sasha? I don't know shit about Maven. That's where I was, uh, and that's what I actually basically said in the presentation. Uh, Mike? So, so the answer to the question is you don't fit the main release plugin into the continuous delivery pipeline. Alex Fontaine has a great blog entry from 2011 on Maven releases on steroids. And essentially, he's showing how to do continuous delivery with Maven without using the Maven release plugin. And in general, you just don't do it. It's, it's, it's honestly an awful, awful, awful plugin. It should not be ever. Plenty. Ever. Yeah. I well, actually switched to Gradle, and that's even better. So There you go. It's funny. I actually, so I actually... Um, chatted with Justin, your colleague, uh, about this. And my problem was, the last time I did Java stuff was a couple of years ago, and it wasn't, it, was May, it wasn't Maven, it was all Ant's bullshit with weird shell scripts in Ant, and everybody cried when they just looked at it. They kind of had to poke their eyes out. So it wasn't any of the new fancy stuff. But we did talk about it over lunch, and, and sort of the, one of the things we came up with is, is that it, the, the big problem is that uh, it does the versioning for you-ish, sort of. So you could do something where you, you basically co-opt the patch version. So you have major, minor, you know, XYZ major, minor patch. You co-opt the patch version to be something like a, like a, a Unix seconds epic, you know, value or, or, a, or just a build number out of, you know, Jenkins or something like that value. And you basically say that the major minor, the x dot y, is the interface. So you say 1.2, 1.3, and then each build number is the, the patch version, and you never snapshot, and everything, you know, will do it live, and you manage it that way. Uh, Justin said, you know, that would work. Uh, there was some fun banter about how that had Netflix had played around with uh, concepts similar to that, and it was a pain in the royal ass because you have this problem about pinning versions and stuff like that. And again, this is stuff that was sort of foreign to me, but I am parroting the answer uh, as I understand it. So it, it sounds like it's actually similar to what other people are saying in that it is possible to do it. You should just you, you should take a gun and blow your head off uh, first at, or just switch to a different plugin, uh, and then you don't have to do that. And that would be a better solution, which we would all prefer that you do that in instead. So I think the answer is maybe just based on what other people have said, you don't do continuous delivery with the Maven release plugin. We will do DevOps DRAB again. It's been a while since we've done it. We always like doing it. We have a couple questions uh, stored up, but it's always fun to do. Upcoming conferences. We always like to cover uh, upcoming conferences, DevOps days. Belgium, we will be there. Live five-year anniversary of Belgium. Also Berlin, Helsinki, Tel Aviv, and Vancouver are all coming up very soon. Vancouver looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. That's November 14th and 15th. And then actually uh, Tel Aviv, 23rd, 24th, was chatting with the organizers out there, and it's their first DevOps days in Tel Aviv. Um, so that, definitely if you're in that area, you should check that out. And then also I wanted to mention Lean UX. We're already doing conferences for next year. Lean UX 
in New York, April 15th through the 19th, 2015. It may seem weird talking about lean, like lean UX, how does that relate to DevOps, but Kevin Bear is going to be speaking, Jess Humble is going to be speaking, uh, I actually will be speaking. So lots of like uh, kind of DevOps thought in the lean space. Uh, that's actually a lot of interesting overlap. So if you are in New York or care about lean stuff, you should definitely look into that. So we would like to thank uh, our sponsor for our, what is it? Did anybody ever look it up, what the 50th anniversary is? I'm going to look now. Oh, Jesus. I'm supposed to give someone. Oh. <laughs> Wait a minute. 50's gold. Gold. Jesus, All right. really? Thanks. Yeah. All right. 50 so should our, be like. Thanks for saving our ass on this, Mike. So uh, for our, for our golden episode, wood. we would like to give one more special shout out to Noah Cheslock. Welcome to the party. We would like to thank our sponsor for episode, our Goldman episode, episode 50, Pager Duty. And uh, from New York, this is Paul Reed signing off. From San Diego, this is Yusuf signing off. From, where am I this week? Bellevue, Illinois. Bellevue. Bellevue, <laughs> <laughs> Washington. <laughs> this is Washington <laughs> From Cambridge, Mass., this is EJ Sermon signing off. And from cloudy Los Gatos, California, this is Mike signing off. And we will see you all in a couple of weeks. <laughs>